0: Welcome back to a very special holiday episode of the Air Power Hour. I'm the host, Tech Sergeant Check, and this week, I had the honor of having on Miss Janine Saijon, sister to Medal of Honor recipient Captain Lance P. Saijon. During a bombing mission malfunction over Laos in November 1967, Saijon violently ejected from his F-4C aircraft and suffered a fractured skull, compound fracture to his left leg, and a mangled right hand. Despite those injuries and being without food and water, Saijan managed to evade enemy forces for 45 days before finally being captured by the Viet Cong on Christmas Day. During this interview, Janine shares the powerful and heartbreaking story of her brother's legacy. She describes in detail those agonizing 45 days her brother spent fighting for his life, his time as a prisoner of war in the infamous Hanoi Hilton, and his eventual death in the arms of his fellow POWs. Janine discussed getting Lance's class ring back from the jungles of Laos years after he passed away, courtesy of President Reagan. The scratched, indented ring which she wore during the interview is now a talisman that she cherishes. Janine said it's her life mission to share Lance's story with the world. She explains how she's been working for years to create a documentary that honors her brother and his heroic story. She also emphasized how important their hometown of Milwaukee has been to help her efforts. As a memorial of her brother has been constructed at the General Mitchell Airport, and the Team Sijon community offers her unwavering support. Finally, she explains how her brother's Christmas Day capture has shaped what the holiday means to her. She movingly implores listeners to reflect on who they are, what their purpose is in the world, and urges them to consider what they have in common with her brother's Modern day parable. It was amazing to have Miss Syjon on the podcast, and I am absolutely honored to have been able to sit here and listen to the story of Captain Lance Syjon. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Miss Janine Syjon.
1: To all units, proceed to your post assignment. All units, proceed to your post assignment.
0: Welcome. The Air Power Hour. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Air Power Hour. My name is Tech Sergeant Check, and today I am absolutely honored to be sitting with the sister of a Medal of Honor award recipient, Lance P. Saijon. Janine Saijon, welcome to the show. I am so happy that you could be here.
2: Thank you so much for allowing me to continue to share. My brother, Lance John, his inspirational story, um, for years and years, I attended so many things that others created around Lance, mm-hmm. recognition, honors, um, awards. And as I grew and matured, it became clear to me that I wanted to create content around Lance's life as he grew up as a child, where he came from, what his roots were. Yeah. Most specifically to allow people to understand what they had in common with him Mm -hmm. rather than what separated them. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity again.
0: Yeah. I am really excited to hear Lance's story. I, I mean, he is without a doubt a true American hero. And I believe it is an honor for anyone to be able to hear his story. And I agree 100%. His, his, his legacy needs to continue on uh, because it is it is an amazing story and a tragic story. Um, but his heroism will live on forever. So I am, I am blessed to be sitting here with you. And I'm, I'm literally just going to give you the floor. I want to hear, and all of our listeners want to hear Lance's story. So go on ahead. The floor is yours.
2: Thank you. Well, I will tell you in probably greater detail uh, than most of your listeners have come to understand. Um, And I do it because there's this incredible value of experiencing in some degree by sound and smell and taste and feel the the um the extreme silence that was happening for him all around him he was alone 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 and so many of us feel that way uh, in a crowd and quietly in the evening Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and so i will Attempt to tell Lance's story the best that I know how through um, Guy Gruders in particular, who was with Lance, um, he ended up being with Lance in the last month of Lance's life. So we'll start by focusing on what Lance is known for, uh, why he received the Medal of Honor. And other accolades. Um, but let me just start by saying, as a graduate of the Air Force Academy in 1965, um, the Vietnam War was heating up, and those young men were pipelined, getting ready to get over there quickly. Lance was a six foot two, 220 pound, big strapping, handsome, athletic build. Um, ready smile, always a beautiful ready smile. Um, He went right into pilot training. Uh, He was trained for the F-4C Phantom Jet, which was the jet and the equipment of the time that you would have wanted to be on as a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. He um, then went up to um, survival school. And just before he left for Vietnam, he came home at the end of June and surprised me for my thirteenth birthday Aww. on June 26th, and this was something that he did a lot. So since I was a little girl, uh, the the difference in age for he and I was 12 years. My father was a Depression-era child and worked very hard, long hours to secure our family wellness financially, so I didn't see him much. Mm-hmm. And my brother Lance, 12 years my senior, stepped in as my father figure. Yeah. So we were very attached in a unique way that today people still don't understand, and as I reflect back to being a child... And how I grew up adoring him, being mentored by him, him surprising me in ways that um, I couldn't have imagined most other siblings had. So to this day, people still don't understand why I have dedicated and devoted so much of my life now to telling Lance's story, and I will um, share some of that later, but... On that particular birthday, he came home and surprised me like he had done so many times throughout my life. And he was getting ready then to head over to um, the Philippines and then on to Vietnam. So July 1st, he boarded the plane in Chicago and began his journey over to Vietnam. He was the backseater in the F-4. The uh, more experienced, older pilots were in the front the, the guys in the back, such as Lance, were dying to get back up in the front because they, yeah. they had trained and they were just itching to get up there. But um, they were held back in in the back of the aircraft. So, as many know, there were, if you got 100 missions, you got to come home. Um, mm. And so everybody was looking for those 100 missions. So... It was some. They felt it was going to be somewhere around nine months that they would be able to get their 100 missions and come home. During that time, very progressive way of communicating was a reel-to-reel tape. Oh yeah. So Lance got us a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and we would get these little tiny cassettes, and we would record messages to one another. And of course, when you're young, or even my parents, you're you're very self-conscious of the way you spoke and. He would play beautiful music in the background um, when he was, he was stationed in Da Nang. He would play music and um, then record himself and was very comfortable in recording himself. When I look back now, I have all of those tapes, ours wow. and his. They were actually um, put away for about 30 years, and then once we found them, Retrieve them. We knew where they were, but it was going to be very emotional the first moment mm-hmm. we heard his voice, and indeed it was. And so that was decades ago. But so I have his voice, and again, he would play this very soft music. He was not a rock and roller at all. <laughs> he loved classical music. He loved, he, he introduced me to Barbra Streisand. Wow. He loved Barbra Streisand. When he was home that June, he brought an album of hers for me to hear and listen to. And People was the one he shared with me first. So I have a strong connection and affection for that particular song. So we communicated back and forth. Back in the day, information wasn't anything close to what it is now. So Mm -hmm. you were lagging by weeks in anything that was happening that you were trying to communicate to one another. So there was always a lag in information. One of the last tapes he sent us, he had just come back from R&R, and he went to Thailand, and he bought Christmas gifts for all of the family. Nice. And on that particular tape, he wanted to share those gifts with my mom to tell her. And so he would say, Mom, make sure Janine's not in the room because I'm going to tell you now what I got Janine, what I got Dad, what I got Mark. So he wanted to share that, and I have that beautiful tape. And that package actually was re- you know, sent back to the family, so we did receive all of those gifts. So it was just two days before... Um, the mission on November 9th, 1967. That would have been his 52nd mission. A few days after he had returned from r &R, before he went on to that mission on November 9th, they were aware in his squadron that they were testing a particular type of fuse, Mm -hmm. and that would render the ordinance, um, it would allow it to to reach the ground and wait until trucks or troops from the vietnamese would be coming over and then it would explode so it was it was uh, a different type of ordinance okay. so they were testing that fuse and some of the guys uh... got hit uh, by sam's uh... in the f-4s as and that fuse was in that ordinance but they they didn't really considered that that was an issue, but they were shocked that they were getting hit by SAMs because they flew at such a high altitude yeah. particular, that the SAMs generally couldn't hit them. Mm-hmm. So Lance was aware of that. one of his best friends, Lee Ellis, went down two days before Lance uh, went on the November 9th mission, and they all started talking about, was that the fuse? So he knew going up that there might be concerns with that. Lance was going to Laos on a mission to take a bridge out at the La Boy Ford. The pilots also knew that if they went down in Laos, it was going to be a near impossible rescue. The terrain was triple canopy um, rainforest. The ground was what was called karst, which is a limestone rock that the edges are so sharp it would just tread your body. The terrain was covered in growth, including heavy vines and roots from the trees. Most often, there would be a tunnel in what looked like, those of us that don't know that terrain, like a rose bush thorns and and vines and the animals would tunnel through they knew that from all the information that they had received prior so they were quite concerned if they would yeah. go down a Laos so it was a night mission um Lance made me- one more recording to us and he said it's a routine mission shouldn't be bad at all I love y'all talk to you soon so he went up that evening and they reached an altitude and they dropped the ordnance. And in less than a second, they had six 750 pound bombs on the aircraft. Um, one of them exploded mm. and it engulfed his aircraft. He was able to eject. That particular ejection seat was so violent that it Most often, the canopy couldn't open as quickly as it should have. It ripped off his helmet. It also took off his first aid kit, so he had nothing um, as he was parachuting out. It was night. The other uh, F-4 that was accompanying them said they didn't see any chutes, and um, the aircraft then exploded completely and nothing was ever heard from from colonel john armstrong who was in the front seat lance ended up getting caught up in the canopy but he had a concussion so he was uh, knocked out for quite a while Uh, when he regained consciousness he was able to cut the cables and just completely fell down to the limestone karst below. He knocked himself out, and he was unconscious again. When he woke up the next day, he assessed his injuries. He knew he had a concussion. His right hand was broken, and the top of his hand was laying flat on his forearm, Mm. backward. He had a compound fracture to the left leg, four inches below the knee, bones snapped off sharp, protruding through the skin. He knew he was in bad shape. So he began to tear things off of his uniform and try and make um, a splint for his leg. He was unable to walk, so he began moving by sitting on the ground, and taking his elbows behind him and pulling himself backwards. Mm. On November 11th, a RESCAP team had located him, and they began to make voice contact. And through a series of events, there were over 108 aircraft, I believe, for that RESCAP, one of the largest rescue attempts of the Vietnam War. Wow. Three jolly greens began to hover around him. And of course, that attracted the Vietnamese. So they began getting closer and closer. Two of the Jolly Greens were shot down. Those men were rescued. A helicopter finally located. T- uh, Lance was trying to uh, send out the flares, but the canopy was so thick it was mm-hmm. very hard to see anything. But he was guiding them in, and finally, they got about 50 feet from him and they dropped the penetrator, which is the big sort of cable with the tripod that goes yeah. out, and sending the um, para-rescue guy down, talking to Lance, say, we're sending a pararescue rescue down. Lance said, negative, I'm surrounded by the bad guys. So he would not put that individual in danger. Oh. And inevitably, he sealed his fate. So for 33 minutes, that helicopter hovered, for 33 minutes, Lance tried to drag himself backward through that thick terrain, limestone karst, shredding his body, and at 33 minutes, he didn't make it, and nightfall was there, and they were getting hit more and more, and they decided they had to pull out. So They said, you hang in there, Lance. We'll come back for you tomorrow. I can only imagine what that feeling was like. Watching that helicopter leave, knowing the rest cap was over, hoping, praying that they would get him out tomorrow, believing in them, believing in God, believing in himself. So he crawled into a sinkhole and fell in. He knocked himself unconscious again and fell onto his radio and drained the battery. So the next day when they came to try and find him, they could not locate him. They could not hear any beepers. And they called off that rescue as well. The 12th of November, Lance regained consciousness and crawled out of that sinkhole. He was alone. And he began crawling backward in the jungle And for the next 42 days, he crawled backward until he was diminished to between 60 and 70 pounds. 80% of his body was open wound. He had sheared off his entire backside to where his hip bones were exposed. All of his knuckles, all the skin on his hands. Was, was torn off. Part of it was the tree roots and the karst. The other part was when he would lay unconscious, he'd wake up and the leeches were all over his body, which attracted the rats. And between the two, he would wake up and they were devouring his body. So he pushed on and on every day, no food, no water, no medical attention. And I think to myself, what What was happening in his mind? The chatter of the mind for all of us is extraordinary if we allow that voice to overpower what our spirit and our heart knows. So I'm sure there were moments that he felt nobody cares, nobody's coming, I won't get out of here. But then, through his reconnection to his faith, his training, his desire to get back home, he moved on. He continued to pull himself backward through that jungle. Finally, on Christmas Day, he found himself on a road, and he passed out on the road. And again, he was diminished to about 60 or 70 pounds. The Vietnamese came by on a vehicle on the truck and found him, threw him into the back of the truck and took him to um, a holding station. And it was actually a, a gas station. And they threw him in the back of the gas station on top of a higher table and didn't secure him knowing that he was not going to be able to do anything, but they put one guard on him. Lance regained consciousness again, and he motioned the guard down with his hand to come down closer to him so he could talk to him. And as the guard came down, Lance gave him a karate chop and knocked him out. So the guard fell down. Lance had to roll off that table, not able to brace his fall. So consider any of us just rolling off, not able to brace yourself. That must have been Mm -hmm. excruciatingly painful. He crawled back out into the jungle. It took a village about a half a day to go out and find him again, and they did. They brought him back. They secured him. They put metal um, all over his legs so that it was heavy and he could not walk uh, or pull himself. They then put him onto a truck and took him to um, the bamboo prison, which was in Vin. And they were going to hold him there until the trucks arrived to take him up to uh, North Vietnam to the Wa uh, Lo prison, um, which was known as the Hanoi Hilton prison, which was the main prison camp. When they took him to Vin, to the bamboo prison, uh, there were, it was made out of bamboo. It was very um, basic. There were three cells on each side of a corridor, four by four cells a bamboo door that you could open, dirt floors, uh, and kind of a creek in the back. Lance was thrown into one of them. He was covered in pus and excrement and dirt and insects, and um, it was a horrific sight, barely recognizable as a human being. Shortly after he arrived, two other airmen arrived and were put in the cells across the hall from Lance. That was Guy Gruders and Colonel Bob Craner. Guy Gruders had actually gone to the Academy, the Air Force Academy, with Lance as, and was in the same squadron, the 21st Squadron, wow. one year older than Lance. And Guy heard them beating this man across. The way, and they were screaming out to stop beating him. They could hear the screams as they beat him. Guy said what they would do is they would beat them on their bones because there was no cushion and it hurt more. And finally, when they were getting ready to transport them up to the North um, prison camp in North Vietnam, the Vietnamese came over and said, Take him out, meaning Lance. Take him out to the creek and clean him up. He stinks. And at that point, the interrogator at that time told Bob and Guy Lance was crazy, crazy in the head, and that um, he had overpowered a guard in um, the first holding camp and told Guy and Bob the entire story and said he was crazy. He was crazy. So that story came from the interrogator at the bamboo prison. They took Lance in the back. They opened the door, and Lance looked up at Guy and said, Guy, is that you? And Guy looked at him, and he said his body was so diminished. When he first saw him in the cell, he said he looked like a child because he couldn't even stretch out. It was four feet by four feet And when they pulled Lance up, he was 6'2", and Guy said he was just taken by surprise because he was a tall guy. And Lance said, is that you? And Guy said, who are you? And he said, Lance Saichon. And Guy said his heart just broke. Mm -hmm. He knew Lance at the academy. He knew him as a football player. He knew him as a gregarious, always-ready smile. They took them in the back, they cleaned them up as best they could, and then they put them on this flatbed truck to begin this arduous journey over monsoon, hole-pitted dirt roads with this truck. Mm. In the back of the truck, there were two 55-gallon drums of gasoline, untethered. So they were flying all over the back of the truck. Lance was in really bad shape. So either Bob or Guy would take turns holding Lance's head in their lap, and the other person would try and hold back those 55 gallon drums so that they wouldn't hit Lance. They would stop, um, they would travel at night and stop during the day because um, the Americans would be able to see them on mm-hmm. the road. So they would go into villages, cover up the trucks. At one village, they stopped, and they were going to show this village who they captured, the American pilots, and they were very proud of themselves that they captured these American pilots. So they pulled back the tarp on the truck, and there were about 150 people in this village, and there was a collective sigh. They were horrified by what Lance looked like. They were not cheering like they normally did. They were crying and they were horrified. They brought rice to the truck, but Lance couldn't eat, he couldn't swallow. He was barely conscious. They continued their journey and and Guy tried to get rice in Lance's mouth, but he said he just, he couldn't even swallow. So Mm. at one point he stopped communicating um, was barely breathing, and Bob said to Guy, he's dead. And Guy said, no, no, not Lance. And he kept trying to attend to him, CPR and pulling him back into life and trying to get him to sit up and talk to them. And when he did, Lance said, how secure can we get one of the guns? from the, the drivers and the two guys sitting up in front. That's how resolved he was. He was not going to go to a prison camp. He wanted to escape. They couldn't believe that this this diminished figure was still talking about escape. It took them 10 days to get to Hanoi, and that was a, a horrible journey. They put Lance in solitary confinement, and they began to torture him every day. As an example, that if you didn't give them information in that interrogation, they were going to take you just shy of death. Mm -hmm. These prisoners were valuable. They were trading tools. Uh, they, They didn't want them to die, but they would take them just shy of death. One of the ways they would torture them is they would seat the POW on the concrete floor. They would pull their arms behind their back until their elbows touched. They would wrap twine around the elbows and then around the wrists. Then they would rotate those arms over the shoulder blades Mm. to dislocate them out of the shoulders and then tie the wrists to the ankles. And have them sit there for hours like that while they beat them. Then they would hoist them up on a hook. And um, beat them further. And again, Lance was all exposed. No, barely any flesh. Nothing to pad any Mm -hmm. of those beatings. Then they would drop them to the floor and they would take off the ropes and... All of that circulation would rush through your body, which was also extremely painful. And Lance would say, I can't tell you anything. It's against the code. My name is Lance Peter Sijon. That's all he would tell them. Eventually, Lance got so bad that they put him in a three-room cell with Guy and Bob. This was a concrete cell. There was an elevated portion where they had shackles. Uh, the shackles would go around their wrists and their ankles and their necks. And they would stay that way often for days. The returning POWs said to me, I would have rather been beaten than in those shackles. Those shackles were built for Vietnamese. That mm. prison camp was built by the French as they were at war with the Vietnamese, and they would put the smaller Vietnamese people in these shackles. They were far too small to begin with yeah. for our American pilots. But they said it was, it was excruciating, just excruciating. In this particular cell, they had three... Sets of sawhorses with boards over them. That was their bed. Um, there was a, a blanket-like piece of fabric. Um, the trick the Vietnamese would also do is this was during a very cold season, and they would come in with ice-cold buckets of water mm. and throw them onto the floor. So it was freezing in there, and it was wet, and that dampness was affecting Lance even more. Um, the pneumonia was getting worse and worse and worse. They would put Lance between them and try and care for him, but he would often thrash and throw the blanket off. It would get in the water, and they would try and give them theirs when he would become conscious he would say sit me up i want to do some exercises with my arms i want to mm. i want to try and lift something so that i i can regain my strength we got to get out of here or he would um become uh, he would make jokes to lighten their spirit wow. and they said they They couldn't believe that this man, he never complained, never complained of his condition, never asked why me, never. He was keeping their spirits alive. Uh, He'd go in and out of consciousness. At one point, they found that he had just rolled off in the night and was in a corner and had a tin cup and was scraping in the corner, um, imagining he could dig his way out. Wow. So this... um, This went on for a couple of weeks. Um, He got very, very ill with the pneumonia. A French doctor came in and put an IV in with fluids, probably antibiotics, and Lance would regain consciousness and look at that IV and pull it out. He would just pull it out. He didn't trust it. He was uh, probably not very lucid. And then on. January 21st, Lance hadn't been talking for a couple of days. And in the loudest, clearest voice, he sat up, Bob and Guy. But they hadn't heard his voice like this since they first saw him. And he sat up and he said, This is it. It's over. Dad, where are you? I need you. Bob and Guy started pounding on the door for the guards to come. They came and they took Lance away. On January twenty-second, the next day, they came back and they said, "Lance died. He was crazy. He died." Um. The family knew nothing for six years. He was listed as M.I.A. Uh, we would send packages, not knowing, but if he was a POW, we sent packages to him. Um, We were advised what we could write, what we could send, um, and they would come back very often. The shipping would all be blacked out and uh, just sent back to us. So we didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. The POWs had an incredible way to communicate. It was called the tap code. Mm -hmm. It began in Korea. And um, some of the airmen knew about the tap code and um, others didn't. But they started teaching each other in the camp. And it was a series of taps that represented a letter. So it was in a grid, um, letters across, letters up and down. So for instance, A would have been first column, first row. So A was one tap. Yeah. B was first column, one, second row, two. H- however, uh, and I may have that order wrong, but it was a series of taps that corresponded to a letter. They began sharing Lance's story, bolstering the spirit of those who were still there yeah. and saying he refused to give any information if we end Lance's story on January 22nd 1968 it's tragic indeed if we don't if we realize the example he gave us was that each of us in our own unique way has an opportunity to light the path For all those who follow, everything we do, we're creating a path. All those who follow us will be impacted by that path. We live in concentric circles. Nobody lives alone. Lance is an extreme story of what the human spirit is capable of. Mm -hmm. Lance demonstrated to us what freedom really means. In a prison camp, they could not rob him of his belief in God, his belief in his country, his comrades, his family. He had the freedom to keep that. Yeah. And ironically, in a prison camp, that's where he could show us. His life is an example of what... The connection of our spirit to the God force, whatever yours is, if it's traditional, non-traditional, whatever religion, whatever culture you're from if 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 you have that belief, that connection, I believe that when Lance was out there for forty-five days, he had to do something similar to connecting directly to that spirit so that his body could not experience what was physically happening to him. There, w- there are moments in our lives, and I hope all of your lives actually, where everything seems perfect. Balance is there. All the balance is right there. And it's fleeting. It's often fleeting. And we have those moments of rapture. Maybe Lance got to expand those moments. Maybe that's what God gave him. The chatter in the mind that he was experiencing, all of us feel that at times, particularly when we're challenged. Yeah, The voices begin. We begin to lack confidence, faith. All of that starts to diminish. That's not who we are. Mm-hmm. That chattering is not who we are. I know he experienced it. He's, he was still a human being and all of us feel it. So, so many times when individuals come up to me and say, once I knew Lance's story and I met my own challenge, I thought to myself, if he could do that, then I can do this. Yeah. What is your this? in small medium and large ways and whatever our large way is for our lifetime our life experience it it it's the worst for us at that moment whatever that one was right so we we learn so much in those moments i ask you to consider that those challenges become an opportunity to be curious about who you are and what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. How are you going to lean into that instead of frustration and stress and anger, Flip that and see what you can learn about yourself. Yeah. And you will get to a much more expanded self sooner. And you may be able to experience moments of rapture longer because you have a greater understanding of how we are all interconnected how we just have to reach for that connection you saw me lee what i did right before i started and i do this every time i speak about lance yeah I take a moment to center myself, and however you get there, you'll all find a way. This is my visual way that came to me, I think, from them, the source. <laughs> um, I, I imagine myself dialing in on a radio, an old radio, and trying to get to the exact frequency I want. And once I hit that frequency, I know I'm connected. And then what happens most often is they give me the words. Yeah. They give me the words. Often after experiences like this for me, I'm not even sure what I said. Uh, I know it's based in love and truth because Mm -hmm. they're giving it to me. Um, But it's an incredible feeling to be able to connect with all natural things, natural order is such a beautiful example of what we should aspire to be. The birds live right now. Uh, you know, they, they are not concerned about the weather report. They're not mm-hmm. concerned about how long they're going to live or what they're, they're, they're living right now at this moment. We can't recapture yesterday. We can't control tomorrow. And we're here and we should be intentional about being here people are coming to realize this more and more because we hear it over and over. This is nothing new I'm saying, and you hear it a lot now. But translate that to your own life and and feel the freedom that living right now in this moment is going to be able to give you. Because that guilt and redo of the past is that's yesterday. That's then. Here we are. We got to keep going. Mm-hmm. We, we should learn from it most definitely. But what occupies my mind is what I'm doing right now. I, I can't. I am never more present than I am in a situation like this. Yeah. I, I don't know what's happening out there in, <laughs> in the world right now, but I do know what's happening with you and I and our listeners. And um, I am the gatekeeper of Lance and his life and his legacy. And I'm so grateful to be able to share this with our listeners. So um, that would give you maybe a new perspective on what really happened to Lance in those three months. I also want to talk about different things that again, you listeners can connect with him, not just keep him in a place that is so seemingly unattainable. And in, in all intents and purposes, it's somewhat, it seems impossible, right? To me, this is a modern day parable. Yeah. It, it, it is, it is amazing. It is inspiring. It is thought provoking for ourselves Um, Mark Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Why are you here? What What are you intentional about? And what are you learning layer after layer that you're going to take that bright light that you are building and expanding and sharing that light? Light severs darkness. Light cuts through darkness. We have so many things that we feel dark and um, less optimistic than we once were. And that some of that is that we were children. Mm-hmm. Everything seemed doable when we were kids. Um, but this isn't the first time in history this has happened. If, if I reflect back to when Lance went to Vietnam, the racial riots.
1: We're, yeah.
2: we're uh, in Milwaukee, where we are right now. Um, we, we had um, curfew at 7 o'clock where the siren went off and everybody had to get off the street. Wow. Father Grappi, who was uh, instrumental in bringing awareness to uh, differences in race and inequality, he led a lot of marches right into my little community of Bayview. where we all felt it was a hamlet and we were safe. And when you walked home from school, every neighbor knew you Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden everything started to fall apart. So there was that, um, there were the riots on campuses against the war. Yep. Um, there were, there was a bus strike, you know, the, the public buses weren't running and so many people depended on that. There, there was chaos everywhere. And Lance, Lance um, on a, a communication on a tape once said, "It looks like it's more dangerous over there than it is here," yeah. and so it it was um, it was rough back then too. This isn't new for us, and it yeah. goes back over history over and over. This is not new for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Lance won the Medal of Honor. Mm-hmm. When did he get that?
2: So in nineteen. 19- 73, the Vietnam War was over.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: There was a published list that came out that said Lance was um, a POW. I was 13 when he went down. Information wasn't as available. Families weren't surrounded with information uh, or specific care from the military mm-hmm. they weren't aware yet really that the family was suffering so much it, yeah. they knew it but there, there there wasn't um an energetic push to surround them uh, as they do now which i'm so grateful for so in 73 when that publication came out and we found out that he was a pow we didn't even know what that meant and then, of course, phone calls started to come in to tell us a little bit. But they didn't know. Yeah. They, they didn't know. The list came out and he was a POW. But until they interviewed, most particularly, Guy Gruders and Bob Craner, who would have known that story? Yeah. In 74, believe it or not, uh, those responsible for his death also had great respect for him. And he was one of few that was buried and had a gravestone marked with his initials. When uh, the war was over, his remains were um, sent back to our family. So in 1974, what remained of Lance came back uh, very quietly at a United Airlines cargo facility. Um, It was my parents' 33rd wedding anniversary. Wow. You can imagine that. We then had a memorial for Lance in April at the high school that he attended. And we chose to have him buried here at Arlington Park Cemetery in Milwaukee with other family members. We wanted him close. Bob Craner nominated Lance for a Medal of Honor. Wow. Apparently, there was a lot of discussion whether what Lance did merited an honor like hmm. that. When you think of Medal of Honor recipients traditionally, it's very active. Um, they're, they're engaged. Uh, in, in wartime, in theater, very actively, Lance's was quiet and alone. So there was discussion whether or not uh, he would be able to receive one, and then it was determined, of course, that, that he would. On March 8, 1976, my parents, my other brother and I, went out to Washington, D.C., and went to the White House. My parents received uh, posthumously the Medal of Honor from President Gerald Ford. Um, That day also Stockdale received uh, the Medal of Honor, Admiral Stockdale, um, and, and two others. My parents, I was never so heartbroken. And proud of my parents ever. Yeah. They stood with such courage. I could see, I know my parents. I know the look. I know my dad was trying to somewhat transport himself somewhere else. I could see it in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And I could see my mom sort of unsteady and wavering. When they read the citation, I was sitting in the front row. I had never heard any description of what happened to Lance. It was the first time I heard anything. I heard the word tortured. I heard the word emaciated. And I, in a still youthful mind, I think I was 22 I had the, 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 the vision of Lance when I was 13, and I kept that vision the whole time. It's a child's protective mechanism, I think. Yeah. Um, and so I, I saw him the same. And when I understood he was a POW, I still visually saw him the same in my mind. And when those words started to come out in that citation, I, it, it just completely shook The concept of what I thought had happened to him. So after that, um, the Air Force Academy had built a new dorm, and they called it the New Dorm because uh, they didn't have a name for it at that point. And it was determined that they were going to name it um, Cy John Hall after Lance.
1: That's amazing.
2: So that was graduation week in June, the same year, 1976. Wow. So we went out there and um this was all so fresh and new um that we were uh we were all just shaking. Mm. I, I I can still feel it in my stomach when we stood there and um it was really difficult. We they they unveiled the portrait of Lance. There's a full-size um portrait of an oil of Lance that looks just like him. They took us into a private room before they unveiled it to the public, and uh, we could barely stand. In fact, we couldn't stand because it looked just like him. So many of his friends were there that we hadn't seen in all those years, and we were so grateful to see a living piece of Lance come back to us. And so um, one of the people that was there was also Guy Gruders, and we'd never met him. And he had only been home for three years, and the struggle that those guys had was, was an amazing journey for them as well. Yeah. And um, Guy had um, a very powerful moment as he was a POW. He watched them torture Lance and heard Lance and cared for Lance, and when Lance died, he was so angry. He said he turned on his God so angry for two years he was angry and one morning he woke up and god spoke to him and said the only way you're going to eliminate this anger is um to stop hating the people that did this to him Mm -hmm. and so he said he prayed every day to forgive them forgive them and he said he he said it in words (laughs) and he said he didn't feel it for six months and finally it actually encompassed his body the forgiveness for them and he became became completely free again and he swore to tell this story in detail and And guy has a near photographic mind um, he, he can remember every detail so he was committed to telling this story well guy met us uh, at the Academy that year in 76. And he began in a crowded room because there was a reception. And he was so free of the pain from it from Lance that he could tell it uh, like a story about a, a meeting that had happened, some, some acquaintance that, but we were in shock. We had never heard oh. these details. We were In such pain hearing, and he didn't mean to do that to us. Mm -hmm. Um, He was telling us out of love. And I could see my dad just sliding down the chair. And my mom motioned to Guy's wife and said, please. And so he did. And um, that was the first time I had heard any details uh, specific to what had happened to him. And then... I began to understand more and more what had really happened to Lance. And for our family, I'm not sure. Not knowing is horrific. Knowing what we came to know happened to him became so visual for us that it took um, decades for me to stop only seeing that when I thought of him.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, When I began to do work around creating content around Lance, I began to see how many people were inspired by him. And the pain started to diminish. And the focus became the inspiration and the support and love for people that are in pain. Yeah, Because his example of what he did, the family of how... We began to to connect back to our faith and know he was home mm-hmm. and know he was home. I never lost faith in God. I never questioned why Lance. I never questioned why me. I never hated the Vietnamese. <sighs> hate is and 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 bitterness is is like poison, you know. I swallow it and think you're gonna choke. So no. I hate you. I'm swallowing that. Po- it's killing me. Mm-hmm. And so anytime any of us feel that way, we have to remember it is just not doing anything good for us. It's tearing us down. Forgiveness is the only thing we can do.: Yeah. It's the only thing we can do. I
1: also hope. Someday, we can
2: understand how connected we all are, how committed we are to our people, our family, our cultures, and find better ways to resolve conflict. Yeah. You know, nobody's closer to it than those who serve in the military. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to airmen, I didn't know the term show of force. Yeah, And I loved it when I heard that. And they've shared with me that it's the last thing they want to do. Yeah. They don't want to do that. They'd rather go in and, and give them the show of force. And often it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I would be so much more interested in how we could resolve conflict that doesn't create this carnage. And we're... We're growing as human beings and we have yet to discover that, but um, that's what I hope for. Yeah. I know how many lives are destroyed. And when those coming back and suffering from PTSD and 25 veterans take their lives every day, something else I want to do, and I have become so inspired to get out there to help inspire or care for others through Lance's life. One of the things I would love to do is have a Sijon Center. And the Sijon Center would be all over the U.S. There'd be centers all over. Excuse me. And we would have boot camps for those returning Mm. from active duty and for the families, yeah, So that they would know how to care for their loved one because they're returning completely different. We get a boot camp for them when they're going over. And then when they come home, we say, you know, I hope it goes well.
0: Yeah, like a reintegration.
2: Mm-hmm. And have a program for them. Um, that's one of the things I wanted to do. There were other things that I have accomplished. Uh, there was an F-4C Phantom jet that was located on the far south end of General Mitchell International Airport. And it was yeah. when the 440th um, uh, had a base there. They pulled out and went down to Pope in, I think, it was 2007 or eight. And the aircraft just looked so lonely. Yeah. <laughs> and it was dedicated to Lance, but there was nothing there. So... I really committed to trying to find that a new location. And I thought, wouldn't it be lovely if it was at the gateway to Milwaukee and when people came into international Mitchell international or a sense of pride for all of us in Milwaukee, that I would have a plaza there for Lance. I'd never done anything like this before. And so I wanted to create a plaza that was unique, um, dedicated to Lance and tell a little bit of Lance's story. Um, I I do many of the things I do very organically. So the only thing I knew how to do was knock on the door of somebody, a contractor, and I had understood that when the aircraft was taken off the pylon, pylon years ago to repaint it, a company by the name of Marshall Erecting had done it, and it was in Milwaukee. So I found them. I walked, just walked into the front door. Um, the gift for me at that moment was in the lobby, their prized possession, the only framed image, was the F-4, Wow! Lance's F-4. And I thought, oh, I'm in the right place. Yeah. They have a connection to it. So I spoke with the owner. I explained who I was. I told him um, my vision and shared with him how I thought we could get there. And I was asking him if he would support what we needed to do in kind. Could Would he help us move that aircraft? So as he committed to it, I had his other contractors coming in—electricians uh, and engineers—and and each one of them lined up to do it. And so we built this beautiful Captain Lance beside John Plaza through Amazing. the right through the support, care, kindness, and generosity of who I called at the time my heroes behind the hero. Yeah. So my heroes behind the hero. Helped build that plaza, and then we had um, we had a campaign going for a while. WTMJ gave support financially through a telethon, um, a radiothon, I should say, and the Air Force Academy gave some contributions. The the graduates of the Air Force Academy, I should say, the AOG um, Hemmings, which is a car um, magazine, because Lance had this Corvette, we did a story on that, and they gave so. We were able to do that. And so we finished that and dedicated it in 2017. And it was wonderful.
0: Wow. That's a, that is a community coming together.
2: Right. And, and to say, I I had shared with the individuals that were the decision makers. I said, this will be something that you will tell your grandchildren. Yes. Grandpa did that. And take them over there and showing them what serving a community means. So there's a lot of ways to serve. Um, We have a traditional service uh, from the military and then we have other ways to serve. And Mm -hmm. we have to, we have to introduce that to children early so that we all work together to serve each other.
1: Yeah.
2: The second thing I, and that took me 10 years. So. 2007, I started thinking about it. 2008, I started working on it. And 2017 is when we dedicated it. So that was a 10-year project. Parallel to that was another 10-year project of me wanting to do a documentary feature film on Lance.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, That was 10 years. That, too, was a community coming together. I bet. So I was the owner of a photography studio and film studio. All the people that I had worked with for years Um, there's a whole community of independent filmmakers and that's their art form. That's their expression. That's their passion. I would let them use the studio at night or on weekends to do their projects and just support them and not charge them anything. Well, when they heard I was making a film, they all came back to me and said, we want to help. Wow. So we did that over 10 years. And these are filmmakers that as their full-time jobs, are working out all over the world. Mm-hmm. When they come home, they do their independent films because it's what they love. So these are great people in the film community. And yeah. we shot a beautiful film over 10 years, had 108 hours of footage. Wow. And, and that had to be um, uh, taken to 83 minutes. You know, yeah. we, we had to... Um, minimize so many stories that i wanted in and we weren't sure what the story was gonna how it was gonna unfold but in a documentary it tells you the interviews start to tell you how this story is going to be told exactly so i have taken that film around the world my air force family i went as far as south korea um we we um, premiered it in 2018 and Right now, it is not uh, available for public distribution because I had to purchase what's called stock footage. That mm-hmm. means the the war scenes. Yeah. So a company owns those. I pay $35 a second for oh those. Oh, my gosh. And I was committed by contract to only show them privately.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: So that was something else I wanted to do. So uh, I hope... My my goal is in the next year to be able to get the funding for um, re-editing that film into various versions of 15 to 20 minute, a half hour, and an hour, and then repurchase stock footage for public distribution, and then it'll be available.
0: I cannot wait.
2: But uh, I go to Airbases all over the world yeah. and screen it. So what we do traditionally, so if you're out there and uh, you have a community service individual that sort of does the logistics on that. Primarily the commander said, I want you to come out and screen the film. Yeah. We'll do um, an intro to the film. We'll usually meet in the auditorium. We'll screen the film. Then after we'll do a Q and a, and we'll often do two screenings so that, um, you know, all the, the wing gets to see it.
0: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've noticed that you came in here and you have this beautiful ring on your hand and you told me a little bit about it. I'd love for you to tell the story behind that ring on this
2: podcast. Oh, I would love to. Um, what I'm wearing and what is referencing is Lance's class ring from 1965 from the Air Force Academy. Any of those uh, individuals that went to the Academy and graduated know that receiving that ring is a rite of passage for yeah. those cadets. Because they made it <laughs> finally, and now they're an upperclassman, and they wear it with such great pride and beyond after mm-hmm. they leave the academy. So, Lance, um, another um, just a little peek into who he was. He documented his entire life, and <laughs> so is is that a god gift? It may very well be because. My parents documented his life and he documented his life. An example of that is when we're talking about this class ring, he saved his original order form with his selections of what the stone should be, the size, the inscription, um, and with his signature. And then my parents had that. So that will come into the story why that's important later. But he saved that, um, So I believe it was in 1983. My parents received a letter from a small uh, hotel stationery that said um, Bangkok Hotel. And I'm going to say it was in about uh, April or May of 83. And the letter said, Dear Mr. and Mrs. John, you don't know me. My name is Lynn Standerwick. I am gathering information uh, my father was a pilot and listed as MIA, but there were some findings that he was, there were sightings of him. There's an individual that has led our group back to try and discover more information. Mm-hmm. As we went back, a Laotian official came forward with, with what we believe to be your son's class ring. Wow. It was found in a thatched hut in a village in Laos. Oh. So um, that's all we got was that letter. And it sort of said, stand by. Someone will be in touch with you. There was an individual that I probably should keep nameless um, that uh, was a soldier of fortune, a mercenary. He was a Green Beret in the day. But he was raising a lot of... um, He was getting followed by the press for saying that the U.S. had abandoned many POWs that were still over there and MIAs. Mm -hmm. And he was going to lead this group, to include Lynn Standerwick, to find her father, um, back over there. And he had made connections with Laotian officials, and they were going to be doing some discovery, so they thought. He was getting paid for this mission, Um, Here's another aside. If you would like to look up the authenticity of this particular story, it was called Operation Lazarus. Operation Lazarus was this group that went over there. They got funding for this project uh, from some... um, seemingly unlikely funders but they were hollywood people Mm. and they said if we fund this one of them said i want to direct a film and the other one said i want to play you which was the man that was taking them over there the soldier of fortune wow operation lazarus those two people are william shatner that wanted to play so star trek for the star trek for those who you know are Truck fans, he wanted to play the Green Beret individual. And Clint Eastwood wanted to direct.
1: Wow.
2: (laughs) Can you imagine that? So that's, I think that's in that article, Operation Lazarus, back in the day. So let's fast forward. Um, My parents get another letter from the individual that was the Green, Green Beret. And he said, I will be in Milwaukee with your son's ring. And this went back and forth, and he wouldn't show up, and then he would. And so finally, and I think it was in September, he gave them an address uh, that was um, around 60th and Silver Spring and asked my parents to come and meet them there. So my parents hadn't told Any of us that this was happening. Nothing about the ring. We didn't, I didn't even know about the ring for years. My parents were very concerned about sharing information, in particular with me because I was so emotional about Mm. all of it. My parents drove out to this neighborhood that they didn't know and they found their way over there. And it was a neighborhood that had a lot of World War II kind of, I call them little box houses. You know, yeah. when the World War II veterans came back and there was a whole federal project that developed all these housing projects and they were tiny little houses. It was row houses like that. Mm-hmm. And the one, the address that they had was was it pretty much disarray. And the big sign on the front door, do not enter, you know, go to the back and weeds were overgrown and it just was in pretty bad shape. So they go to the back and they knock on the door And um, a very small um, Laotian woman opens the door and escorts them in. And it's uh, one of those little traditional houses. You come in the back door, there's the kitchen, you go through the entryway, there's a little living room off to the left, there's a little bedroom. And so it's very tiny. All that's in the whole house is a kitchen table and a chair. That's all that's in there. So they escort my mom and dad into the living room area where there's no furniture or furnishings. And they look over to the left where there's a bedroom and there's three or four women on the floor plucking a chicken. Wow. These are Laotian women. My parents stand there for an hour and a half. Nobody talks to them. Nobody comes in. Nobody addresses them. No furniture, no chair to sit on nothing. Um, In the kitchen now, they can see from another room, a man comes out and sits with his back to my parents and gets served breakfast as my parents stand there. So breakfast dishes are taken away. They come and get my parents and bring them to this individual. And this is the man that led um, the team in. So he starts to pull out the ring. Let me, let me backtrack one moment. My mother, who had Lance's order form,
1: mm-hmm.
2: called the manufacturer of the ring, Balfour, and they looked up everything on Lance's, you know, class. They sent back a photograph of what Lance's ring would have looked like. So my mom knew what to look for. And then they had Lance's order form. I mean, yeah. this was it. So he pulls out the ring and he moves it forward with his hand to show my parents and um he pulls it back and said you can have it for five thousand dollars wow and there was none of that conversation yeah prior to this and um my parents were in shock my dad went to reach into his sport coat and pull out a checkbook my mother um if you know who Jackie Kennedy is, she looked like Jackie Kennedy, beautiful Irish woman and demure and never fought with my dad, never raised her voice. I never heard my parents argue. Can you believe that? Wow. Never heard my parents argue. Later in life, my dad said, oh, she was good at icing me. <laughs> <laughs> so she could ice him for a couple of days.
1: Yeah. But
2: there was no arguing. So she gently took her hand and moved my dad's arm down as to say not to write the check Mm -hmm. and looked at Green Beret and said, we are not paying for my son's ring. And with that, they left. They went home and she started taking out two pieces of paper, put a piece of carbon paper in between because that was the only way you get a copy of something back and then. And she began to write, Dear President Reagan. (laughs) so she wrote of I think a two or three two page letter front and back two page letter sent that off again I knew nothing about this this as I come to know all this I'm envisioning how she thought well President Reagan's gonna read this
1: (laughs) he's gonna go straight
2: to him this is his address at the White House no you know she, she she wasn't um uh fooling herself completely, but she just felt at some point he'll probably see it. So she addressed it to him. Within two days, uh, representatives of the White House called us. They got some other individuals involved from the Air Force. Now, remember that the Green Beret man is a thorn in the side of the government, the military. They really don't like this guy, and he's getting a lot of publicity about the ring, I found this ring. So he's getting TV coverage in different places he lives. And so, and then he has the the guts to say, give, you know, give me $5,000. So in two days they sent a representative over the the third day. So second day they called my family and the third day they sent representatives went right to that house, demanded the ring and got back to my parents' home with a police escort. Wow. And, And this is the ring. Um, if this ring could talk. Oh, my gosh. It, what it could tell us. So I, I am often at many, many different Air Force installations around the world for the work that I do, for the um, speaking that I do, to meet different individuals, represent Lance, like I said, at so many of the different awards. And um, I know many of the people at various bases. And so I took it to wright Pat to get... Um, the guys to look at it to see if, you know, they could authenticate it and they were just blown away. That's amazing. So for the viewers, you can see the ring is completely scratched up. The stone is all scratched up. The sides are scratched up and worn. Um, the part that would go under your finger is very thin and worn. So what happened? We don't know. We know that um, it surprised me that he would have an identifying item on him. But many of the pilots told me they wore him. Yeah. They wore him. Or Guy Gruders had a ring on. And at first when he went down, the villagers found him. There's a big, they They sound the gong, 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 for all the villagers to come because there's a downed pilot. If they get him, they're probably going to try and kill him. Yeah. The soldiers don't want them to kill him because he's valuable. Yep. That pilot's valuable. So the villagers came and they stripped him of his clothes, got him down on his knees, and were going to cut his finger off to get the ring. Wow. They had a machete. Oh. And just as they were getting closer, the soldiers came. And he said, they, they saved my finger. Wow. Oh. You know, there, there's so many unbelievable stories. Yeah. Um, but that's the story of the ring. And often when I particularly go to the academy, the cadets love that because they understand the importance yeah. of that rite of passage and yeah. that ring. So they hold it. I let them hold it. I put my hands under their hands just in case yeah. it, <laughs> it drops. It drop. And um, they just, they love it.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I can just, I just want to say it. I am so honored that you came in to tell his story. Uh, That was beautifully tragic. And it is, like I said, um, Lance is a true American hero. And to think that his Medal of Honor was ever in question, I mean, that was the most honorable thing that a man could do, was give the ultimate sacrifice and at the same time still hold up that that code. Mm -hmm. So... Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it has been a pleasure and I'm so excited to, to, to get this episode out so everybody can hear Lance's story. So,
2: Well, thank you too. And to all those listening, um, I encourage you to connect with him. He, he, is, um, he is a great guide in your life. Uh, You'll find him in surprising places, along with others that are gathering around him that love you. I often think about us down here in a stadium, and all those loved ones that have gone before us um, are packed in the seats, and they are encouraging and cheering us on. And I welcome you and encourage you to invite Lance in to cheer you on. And thank you, thank you for all that you do. And all those moments that uh, are challenging for you and that stillness and that quiet time, uh, those are some of the toughest times. So um, uh, you're my new family. I love expanding my family. Yeah. And I love (laughs) y'all. Yeah. I do. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this is the air power hour. Take care, friends.